Have you ever gone to see a movie with a friend and you greatly enjoy the movie? You get done, you say, oh, that was pretty good. I like that. I'm glad that we went. And then your friend turns into like some kind of backseat expert on plot and, and how things work and, and what was not good about the movie and what, what would have fallen apart, what wouldn't have worked in real life and how dumb it all was. Have you ever gone to a movie with me? Yeah, that's how I tend to act. Uh, I don't know. I, I can enjoy the movie and pick it apart afterward. I, I have that gift, especially when it has to do with elaborate plans, right? Oh, everyone loved that one Batman movie, and I'm going, are you kidding me? Everything that the Joker planned and did and the way it, it, it all depended on other people doing exactly what they happened to do at the exact moment. If anyone had made any different choice at any time, if that bus had driven through here 10 seconds later, the whole thing would have fallen apart. How silly. And we look at a, a text like this and we see how hard it is to hatch a supervillain plan and carry it out. All you need to do is tell the wrong guy and the next thing you know, boom, it all falls apart. And it's true that most of the plans that we see, even, even, you know, like the Oceans movies, you watch those and they're planning the elaborate heists and you start thinking through if that one thing wouldn't have gone exactly that way or this thing would have gone this, the whole thing wouldn't have worked. The fact is, no matter how clever we think we are or how far ahead we think we are planning and how well in hand we think we've got our destiny or our lives, we are contingent on, our lives are dependent on all sorts of other circumstances, all sorts of other people, innumerable different things. You've heard of the butterfly effect, that if a butterfly flaps its wings a different way, that it would have ripple effects that would change everything about the way that the world uh, develops. And then we read a book like this and see that there is one who can plan and make allowance for every contingency. There's one who can plan and not have to worry that something will go awry or somebody will do something unforeseen and the whole thing will get messed up. We see that no matter how far ahead we think we've planned, how ironclad my life situation is going to be, we're all playing checkers while God is playing chess. We only live one event at a time. God is working out 10,000, 10 million, 10 billion moves ahead, all simultaneously. His chessboard isn't the regular chessboard, eight by eight squares. I mean, how many people are on the earth? Seven billion and some? That would mean 8,000 by 8,000, and then a 100 boards on top of one another, and he can move the pieces between boards up and down laterally. You remember the scriptures talk about how God brings about the rise and fall of many. Only it's far more complicated even than that because God is not moving people around like he's playing chess. I've heard that. In fact, this guy here was often accused of, of teaching that, but it's not what scripture teaches. God doesn't take us and, and just slide us around like he's playing some game with our lives. No, he is working in innumerable circumstances, what seems to be happenstances, with perfect timing to bring about his perfect plan. Just look at this passage here. Before any threat to the survival of the Jewish nation has even begun to materialize, God is already laying the groundwork and starting to work out his plan for their deliverance from that threat that hasn't yet appeared. So it's not just 3D chess, it's 4D chess. 
Because we're moving through time as well. The death of Jesus uh, at the, the turn of the uh, B.C. to A.D., then ripple effects backwards to save people who had come before. We have no ability to even comprehend the way that God plans and works. And this should be a great comfort for us. You remember how the passage ended last week with Mordecai walking back and forth in front of the palace trying to get word on how things were going with his adopted daughter Esther because she had been grabbed and brought in with all the other beautiful virgins of the land in order to take part in this sick, twisted contest to choose a new queen. And in the process to build this harem larger and larger and larger. Mordecai is worried. Mordecai is, it seems maybe even obsessing a little over the situation, but unable to do anything about Esther's situation because there is a sovereign king who's in control. Mordecai is just a guy. Jesus, on the other hand, our sovereign king, knows every detail of our lives, knows everything about our thoughts, our fears, our hearts, and he has the ability to come in and change it. He redefines sovereign for us. We see how God works in both the big things and the little things in this text here. Because our text today begins with a fairly in-depth look at Persian royal cosmetic treatments, which is something that I've been studying on the side for years, and then gets right into the intrigue, this Huge plot, the first but not last time in this book that a secret plot to kill someone is foiled. But, you know, we've got to start with the cosmetic treatments. So we read in verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. So we have a year of someone being anointed with oil again and again for six months and then spiced. I don't know. That's odd to me, but that's what they did. And, you know, it's not all that foreign to our world today. I feel like every third commercial I see on television is for moisturizing lotion of some kind. Everyone feels itchy all winter like me, right? And you go, what can I slather on me that'll make me feel a little less like a, a crocodile? Well, in a hot, dry, desert climate, oiling your skin was far more important, especially if having soft, supple, fragrant skin was central to the function that you you served in the kingdom, which was the case of those women who were in the first harem. So they would take myrrh. They didn't have oil of Olay, but they had oil of myrrh, and they would derive it from trees. It was very expensive. It was a very difficult process. And then they would rub it into their skin. Now, we think of baby Jesus when we think of myrrh, right? Coming up on Advent, we think of the wise men, gold, frankincense, myrrh. But that wasn't the only use, the anointing in a symbolic way. Open up Song of Solomon. Several times throughout, myrrh is mentioned. And it's a lot more sensual. Song of Solomon 4.6 Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Oh, yeah. It would, it would rub it into the skin to soften the skin and for it to kind of give them a pleasing aroma. And after six months, it would kind of be 
part and parcel of who you are. And in a world before modern hygiene, can you imagine how unusual for someone to walk into a room and you go, it smells, why it smells good when you walk into the room. That's unusual. So this is what she goes through, like all of the other women. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except for what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into the royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Notice here in verse 16, she is once again taken. She's already been taken from her home. She's already been taken in with this large group gathering of, of virgins. Certainly not anything people were signing up for at a sign-up sheet. They were just gathered in. Now she's taken in when it is her turn. But this is the last time that we're going to see her in such a passive role. We, we've talked about how the, the passive voice has such an important role here in the book of Esther because it, it's where we see God at work when something is said to have happened rather than someone does X, X happened, and we say, oh, maybe they're leaving a little room here that it's not just human agency, but divine will that causes this thing to happen. Well, Esther, as she gets closer and closer to the center of God's plan here, is going to begin to be far more active in this story. After being brought into the king, then what would happen here for most women is that they would be taken to a second harem. That's right, he has a second harem. The first one was for the virgins, the second for the concubines. Uh, there's a whole bureaucracy for fulfilling this king's carnal desires, which is horrifying. The deeper you think about it, the more just your blood boils at the fact that this was accepted. These women were literally numbers, and they would be summoned at will by the king, and if they weren't summoned, then they were forgotten forever, out of sight. In verse 17, though, that doesn't happen because Esther, she finds favor. She finds grace and she finds that the king loves her. The word for love in the Hebrew here is the normal word, ahav. I read it and I think, really? Does he love her? Is this love or is this something else? The NIV also struggles with this, and they translate it, he was attracted to her more than any of the other women. I think what we see here is this is Xerxes or Ahasuerus' version of love, what he thinks love is, the closest that he can get. So on her head, he places the very crown that Vashti had refused to put on and come into his presence. And we see now a major theme of Esther escalating a little more yet, the rise and fall. Luke 1.52, we're going to look at this soon as we go into Advent. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. That's from Mary's lips, from Magnificat. And this is what God is going to be doing in this book, a great reversal. And a lot of our church and a lot of the world today, and, and, and even people who set themselves up as teachers and experts in the scriptures, don't like the notion that God is going to get involved in people's hearts and changing their minds. He's going to get involved in actually messing with their quote-unquote free will. That has become very much an idol in Western culture. 
free will God can't mess with. He can do anything but not mess with your free will. Really? Do you believe that? The people even who suggest it don't believe it because they will pray later on in their lives, oh, well, Lord, change this person's heart. Oh, well, Lord, my son who's gotten involved in a bad... Change his mind. Change what he wants. Renew him. Change his will. Because if we were all to follow what our wills, free as they were, with the shackles of sin holding us in, wanted to do, we would continually be separated from God. It's that he breaks the chains and renews our hearts and gives us a new will, the expulsive power of new affections that push out the old affections that make it so we can even become his disciples. And God is orchestrating all of this, and it does involve some Tweaking of the hearts of the people involved. There's two key Hebrew words here, and I'm going to point them out. I don't expect you to remember them, but they are important. In verse 9, when she first caught Haggai's eye, that was last week, he was the eunuch in charge of the first harem, and they connected. And it says that she received his chesed. And this word, you know what? Chesed, say it with me. Chesed. Oh, you didn't, you didn't say it, most of you. Give it a real lean into the chesed. There you go. This is a word that is very frequent, very common, and very meaningful in the Old Testament. It's a theological term most of the time. It is a word that the, the ESV here translates favor. If you read the King James Bible, usually it translates chesed as mercy when it's attributing it to God. That God's mercy is, is kind of poured out on us. Other translations have translated it loving kindness. All one word, sort of smooshed together. One idea, loving kindness. I like the translation covenant loyalty or devotion. That God's hesed, God's covenant loyalty, his devotion to us means that even when we're faithless, he is faithful to us and continues to give us his favor. Then in verse 15, Esther, we're told, was winning the chain. There's another one there. Chain. In the eyes of all who saw her. Go ahead and say it. Chain. I love it. You guys are, you guys are made for this stuff. This one also is often translated favor. But this is the closest we have to a Hebrew word that answers to the New Testament idea of grace. Unmerited favor. Favor given to you, not because of anything you've done, but because just of the love of the person bestowing it. And the way it's usually used, the first ten times, I think, in the Bible, this word chain comes up, it's talking about how have I found favor in your eyes, O Lord? Or if I have found favor in your eyes, O Lord. Talking about God giving his favor, his grace to fallen people. Then in verse 17, when she goes into the king... We're told that the king loved her and that she found chesed and chain, favor and grace in his sight. Do you think this just happened? Or is God working out his 4D chess in order to bring about his purpose for these people? The favor and grace that Esther experiences is certainly not based on any bold or faithful action that she takes. She hasn't done anything incredible or different. All she does is say, well, I guess what I'll do is I'll just go along with whatever Haggai says. He happened to give her the best position in the harem, probably positioned her best in this whole uh, process, and then told her what he thought the king would like. 
Take this with you, but maybe don't put too much makeup on. I don't know. I really don't want to think about it too deeply, but it worked. This favor and grace in this awful situation where redemption begins to come in to the fall, it truly is undeserved. And if it's not undeserved, it's not grace. So she becomes the queen. The king's love then, his, his favor, his grace, spills out beyond Esther. He's seemingly twitterpated, and it begins to fall on his subjects as well. He, he says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you all how happy I am to have a new wife, a new queen. And he begins then this process of uh, first having a, a huge royal banquet, Remember, the reason for this whole book being written is to give us the backstory of a feast called Purim that Israel celebrated. And so feasts, banquets are going to be central to it. They play a decisive role in the plot from the very beginning. Remember, it was at a banquet where Queen Vashti is deposed all the way up through the climax and then even in the epilogue. It's banquet, banquet, banquet. Then he begins to to give gifts. And it was common for kings in the East to give gifts like this. Uh, he'd have a, a tax holiday, which he seems to do here. Others have suggested some of the a little bit harder to translate words may indicate a release of prisoners or a release of people from military service after he had gone on this huge campaign and conscripted so many people into his army. Whatever the case, gifts were given in honor of the new queen. And I have to imagine that Esther, who has already gained the cane, the favor of everyone, has got a real high approval rating at this point. I already like that lady. Now I don't have to pay taxes this year? All right. God is at work here. How could she deny it? And yet, even after being crowned queen, even after everything falls her way, she doesn't reveal who she is. She continues to obey that initial warning from Mordecai and keep her identity as a servant of the Most High God a secret. This will come back into play, of course, later on. Then we move from the cosmetics and then the coronation into the intrigue here. Verse 19 begins, Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, and now this is a very difficult passage to interpret. What does that mean? They were gathered together the second time. In the Hebrew, it's it's kind of broad as well. It could be understood several different ways. I'd like to think that this is the gathering together of all the remaining women after he found his queen. He says, okay, you can send everybody else back home. But Ahasuerus is a slime ball who doesn't know the meaning of the word monogamy or hesed for that matter. And it very well may be him further extending his collection of concubines even though he just found a wife that he loves more than all the others. But I do want to point out the word second here. And I want you to, to be on the lookout in the book of Esther for twos. Two, two, two. We're talking about how Esther had two names, right? Hadassah and Esther. One Hebrew, one Persian. Why? We're told that she has those two names emphasizing her dual identity. She is trying to be a faithful servant of this covenant God while also being a faithful subject of the land in which she lives. That gets far, far more difficult as she moves into the harem, and it will be very difficult as she now sits on the throne. How can I be both a servant of God and a servant slash co-regent of some sort with Ahasuerus? So we've seen two and two and two after the, the second harem 
uh, there's a second gathering of virgins. We had two eunuchs plotting the assassination, two, 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 this double identity, pointing all the way forward to the end where we have the two days of Purim. The times given here are not precise. We're not exactly sure how long passes between the coronation of Esther as queen and this plot that Mordecai uncovers. But we do know that the next concrete date given is in in chapter 3, five years later. So it's been less than five years that Esther has been the queen when Mordecai, who's still sitting at the king's gate, a, a court official of some kind, comes into the knowledge that there are these two eunuchs, Bigthin and Teresh, who are plotting to actually lay hands on King Ahasuerus. They are going to kill the king. This was not entirely uncommon in the ancient world. If you start reading about the successors of this king, it's like everyone gets killed by the person who takes their place, who then gets killed by the person who takes their place, and on and on it goes. What Mordecai does is the right thing. We don't know if maybe he just overheard this thing. We don't know if maybe they came to him and said, you show an awful lot of interest in what's going on in there. Are you with us? Do you want to help us in our plot? At any rate, he takes the information directly to Esther because he doesn't know who else he can trust. And in his name, she tells the king. It's urgent. They've got to deal with it now. This is an immediate, clear and present danger. This isn't like those weirdos who wanted to kidnap the governor, but their group was like half undercover FBI agents, and they literally failed to blow up a balloon. Look it up. They were like, maybe we could blow up a bridge, and they couldn't blow up a balloon. No, these guys are keepers of the threshold, meaning they have regular ready access to the king's private chambers where he sleeps. They can come and go. Ahasuerus will later be killed by his his, uh, assistant in his own bedroom. So this is a real danger here. With Persian efficiency, they investigate, they find these guys really did do this, they're guilty, and they hang them. And this is the introduction of another theme that will continue to come up. The gallows and the hanging. That is a a kind of focal point, much like the banquets are going to be. You know, you got banquets, you got gallows. That's life. I want, though, for you to get the picture that you have in your mind out of your mind of a big wooden structure, like a stage almost, with trap doors, and a beam over here with ropes hanging down. That is not what they mean by hanging. Not in the least. Literally, woodenly translated, <laughs> it's a pun, it just means they were suspended upon wood or upon a tree. They took these two guys who were going to try and kill the king and killed them publicly in an awful way, most likely impaling them on a pole or crucifying them. It surprises some people to learn that this far back, the Persians had invented crucifixion. And they certainly used it systematically to subdue their enemies and put down rebellions. Now, the Romans would later perfect crucifixion, and they made it all about intimidation, breaking the spirits of everyone who had to walk by someone hanging from a cross. For the Persians, though, it wasn't mostly about intimidation. It was about shame. If they were going to impale someone publicly or hang them from a tree, it was to shame them. Later in chapter 9, some wicked men will be hanged, probably again meaning impaled, after being killed by the sword. Why? Because it would shame them. It was thought to prevent their soul from entering the next life. Ahasuerus did not back down from a good impaling. Between Esther 1 and Esther 2, I mentioned he went off and tried to defeat Greece 
You know the story of the 300 Spartans, King Leonidas and the hot gates. You know what he had done between Esther 1 and Esther 2 when they finally, good for you, defeated those few hundred people. He took the head of Leonidas and impaled it on a pole. This shows you how serious this is. To add insult to injury, if by insult we mean eternal shame that transcends this world and this life. It's also been suggested, by the way, just as an aside, that this is what it means when we're told that Judas went out and hanged himself. There's this uh, seeming contradiction that, that skeptics like to point to. Why does uh, the gospel say that Judas went out and hanged himself, but the book of Acts says that he went out and, and he like burst forth and his insides came out and all this stuff. And, and there are different ways people have tried to harmonize these two, but if he actually impaled himself, it makes the story all the more horrifying. But yeah, it's got to be horrifying here in the book of Esther because this drives the theme home. Mordecai, you'd think, would be in a great position now to perhaps get a raise, perhaps get a promotion, perhaps have something good done to honor him for saving the king's life. But Herodotus tells us that while the Persian kings were known for big punishment and bigger rewards, the scriptures tell us that Mordecai doesn't really get anything. And he would have been expecting something, make no mistake, honor or money or land or a higher position and it's odd when none of that happens. And, and even if he said to people, and even if he meant it, hey, I don't do it for the reward, all right? Doing the good deed is its own reward. He must have been a bit disappointed. It would have been expected in that setting. Think about it. Esther just fell in line with Persian culture and did everything that was asked of her and was greatly rewarded. She got her own holiday. Everybody loved her. Everybody knew her name. Everyone was thankful for her. Mordecai went above and beyond, saved the king's life. No parade, no banquet, no Mordecai day, no medal of honor, just a note in a book that literally puts people to sleep. But God's purpose is being worked out in both of those outcomes. In the great reward and in the conspicuous absence of one. And of course, if you know the story, you realize that had Mordecai been honored right away, God's people could have been wiped off the face of the earth. Because it's remembering that he hadn't rewarded and honored Mordecai that brings their deliverance at the last moment. But in that moment... It does not feel good to do the right thing and get no reward, but maybe even pay a price. And he kind of does. His having ratted out these two eunuchs, as we will see next week, has made Mordecai no friends at the citadel gate. And that is going to kind of come back to haunt him when Haman gets his number. And beyond that, speaking of Haman, the very next thing that the king does in the text is to promote not Mordecai, but a man who will single out Mordecai and try to wipe out his whole nation to, to erase their people from the face of the earth. And he must have been thinking, what on earth did I do to deserve this? He must have been thinking some version of that old saying, no good deed goes unpunished. Jesus told us to expect this in our lives. When we do good things, to not always expect to immediately be given a great reward. When we proclaim the truth, or stick to the principles taught to us by Jesus that the world is not going to stand by and clap. That more often than accolades, we can expect a Haman by way of thanks. Others promoted before us. 
People who are hostile to us simply because we serve a God that they despise. In 1 Peter 3, the, the apostle writes, It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I remember the first time I was mocked for being a Christian. I remember the second time I was mocked for being a Christian. These things sting. The most recent time I was mocked for being a Christian was yesterday in Jackson, Michigan. Completely unprovoked other than to tell someone that I was a pastor. Jesus warned us that the world would not love us for following him, but would hate us because it first hated him. And we will have some disappointing games of checkers. But remember, God's still playing 4D chess for his glory and for your good. I think we see here, though, what providence is not. It is not a guarantee of comfort or fairness in this life. Compare that to today's pithy truisms that people offer up. When times are tough, they'll say, listen, yeah, you didn't get this, but God's got something better for you. God's definitely got something better for you around the corner, so hold on to that like a teddy bear. When we face hardship or disappointment or ill treatment, don't worry, you put in your time and God's going to give you the big reward in this life. You'll see it's not necessarily the case. Sometimes it is. We'll see this great reversal at the end of Esther. Sometimes it's not. We see Stephen stoned to death and then receive his reward. But we only can see God's providence working itself out very clearly in hindsight, looking backward. I keep saying that, but why is that? Why is that the case? I would say it's very much like the side mirror on your car. As long as I can remember, they've always had that little sentence there. What does it say on the side mirror? Yeah, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. And then there's a T-Rex and you're like, oh, that's funny. Why are objects in the mirror closer than they appear? It's because the side mirror is convex to give you a wider field of vision to show you more context to what's going on. The, the wider your view, the more you understand the big picture. The smaller your frame of reference, the less you'll understand the context of what's going on. It's true in Bible study. It's true in life. We have a game at our house. We were playing it with Steve Wakeford not that long ago where one of the, the things that can happen is you pull a card and it has this super, super, super zoomed in picture of like a bee's wing or uh, you know a grain of, of sand or something and you have to guess what it is based on this ultra magnified picture. It's very, very difficult. But as soon as you zoom out, it's no problem at all. More context. And we have more context when we are looking backward. We see where God has been at work. Sometimes, though, we still don't have the context. You can look backward and you say, my goodness, God was at work back here because you'd have to go out further yet, further yet, and look at someone else's life or look at someone else's struggle and see how God was working for their good through your life. Look at Daniel and look at Joseph. Both of them have very similar arcs to Esther. Both of them were used of God in a similar way, beginning with being dragged off to a foreign land and stripped of their freedom. The, the text makes a big deal about both of them being like easy on the eyes, using very similar language to how Esther is described. And then starting with that, God causes both of them to find chesed and hain in the eyes of powerful people. But how do they use that? How do they use that favor? For their own glory? What does Joseph do? 
Joseph uses this favor that he finds not only to save his family, who had turned against him, his brothers anyway, but also to save pretty much the world. All the nations were coming in during the famine in order to get food that had been prepared and stockpiled by Joseph because God had given him position and the favor of the people in charge, making him second only to Pharaoh. When God does give us rewards, when God does honor us, our goal is not honors for honor's sake, but for God to be glorified. Whether we're punished or rewarded. And look at how Esther here is rewarded and doesn't know that she's been put in that place for a reason for a while. These unexpected blessings are not just consolation prizes when they come. This is not just, well, Esther, you've had a difficult time so far. You were orphaned. You were dragged away with all the other women of the, the empire. And now, hey, you had it coming. Something good is here for you. There's stewardship involved. Yes, she should enjoy the good things God gives her. Yes, she should return thanks to God. But she needs to be ready for God to say, "How here? here is how you ought to be using the gifts I've given you. To push the, the chess analogy, this is a move that God is making. Queen to F7. Positioning the queen to win the game for his glory. We have been contrasting throughout our study so far King Ahasuerus with the King of Kings, Jesus. So far, Jesus has turned out to be better. But let's look again a little deeper. What is it that happens to the women that King Ahasuerus quote-unquote loves? Well, they're taken a year to make them pure and beautiful and soft and aromatic. Then they're brought to the king for one night then comes the walk of shame, by no fault of their own, into the house of the concubines. Now they have a new identity. They are concubines, second-class citizens, therefore the gratification of someone else. Our king, on the other hand, is the very opposite. He calls us to himself, not when we have been overly purified and made to be wonderfully aromatic from a year of, of spa treatment, but rather he calls us to him unpurified and putrid, full of shame from our own sin. This is why Peter, when he recognized who Jesus was, said, away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He says, no, I'm not going to go away. You need me. He purifies us by no merit of our own rather than defiling us. He keeps us ever close to him. How purified and holy, adorned as his bride he doesn't give us shame. He takes our shame from us onto his own shoulders. Remember Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. Jesus took so much shame upon himself, becoming sin, that he hung on a tree. The ultimate thing that Ahasuerus could think of, how do I shame someone? I will impale them. Well, Jesus, he hung on a tree, cursed as any man hung on a tree, the Old Testament law says. He was pierced, his hands and feet impaled for us. He was filled with our shame, put on exhibition, openly mocked. He did the walk of shame for us, carrying his cross like a common criminal to the top of Golgotha. And he accepted a very, very delayed reward. 
When he did that for us, what did we do? Did we say, oh, thank you, let's bow down and worship you right now? No, they nailed him to a cross. They pulled the cross upright, anchored it into the ground, and then stood at a distance and mocked him, spat on him, laughed at him, and ultimately pulled him down and threw him in the grave. But we read in Hebrews 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He saw that there was reward beyond the pain, that there was joy beyond the suffering. And he fixed his eyes on that, and now we are called to fix our eyes on him. Knowing, in the words of Romans 10, 11, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. He took the shame from us. Now, what was it that was given to Mordecai? His deeds were written down in a book. That's it. His name was etched down and put into the annals of the Medes and the Persians. Well, when Jesus took our shame, he wrote our names in a book as well. Now, writing is going to be a huge theme in the book of Esther as well. I'm not going to get deeply into it, but 63 times writing is referred to. It'll come up again, and we'll explore it later. But how wonderful is it to know that just as later on it came back what Mordecai had done and how he was owed honor, later when that book is opened, your name and mine, because we've put our faith in him, will show that based not on what we have done, but based on what he has done for us, we too will share in God's glory. We may be unfaithful, we may be fearful, like these heroes so far have proven to be, we are undoubtedly undeserving, and yet we experience God's grace, His favor, God's chain, and His chesed. Just as God in His providence raised Esther from an orphan adopted to a virgin abducted to a queen adorned with a crown, so we were spiritual orphans, having turned away from our Father. So we then were held back abducted in a sense, chained by the sin nature. And he broke us out, made us free, and made us his holy bride. You know, we live in a world of instant rewards. In fact, I googled that word, instant rewards, and there were 102 million hits. A lot of them were apps called instant rewards, or references to loyalty programs. Yeah, swipe your card, get instant rewards. That's how we think of loyalty in our world today. Yeah, if, if, if you'll come to my store frequently once in a while, I'll give you a free taco or give you cash back on qualified purchases. Then you'll be loyal to me and that'll be me being loyal to you. We don't live in that kind of world of instant rewards as Christians, though. We have to remember that sometimes to do the right thing means not to be given any reward. And ultimately, maybe even to be punished and pay a price for it. But at the end, we know the book will be opened. And that Jesus himself will reward us. We know that, that there is not any sense in which our deeds will be forgotten except that the sins are under the blood of Jesus. And that lack of immediate reward was actually God at work in the story of Esther. A lack of immediate reward in your life. Maybe God at work. Maybe in your story. Maybe in someone else's. Maybe we need to widen the rearview mirror and see to the edges, to the periphery, how God is at work. God's plan cannot be thwarted, will not be thwarted, 
It's clear as day as we read the book of Esther. And as we look back through our lives of following Jesus, it becomes clearer and clearer, even in our own experience. Never forget that. Our God, he's not like the joker, leaving everything to chance. He leaves nothing to chance. He leaves nothing to sort itself out. And he leaves no one behind who follows him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story in which Mordecai brings this plot to the king's attention. Lord, we pray that you would help us to follow you with faithfulness, that you would help us to do the right thing, even when we don't think we will get a reward, even when we don't feel like it's going to be beneficial for us. Let us remember that there is more at stake here than our comfort or our position or a promotion or whatever we might want to get out of life. Lord, that there is something far more important here, and that is covenant loyalty, that you are loyal to us and faithful even when we are faithless. But Lord, we pray more and more that you would make us to be faithful, that you would help us to be faithful, that you would give us the strength and the perseverance to do what is right when faced with difficult decisions. And Lord, we know there are many ahead, that there is going to be a, a more and more pressure put on Christians in this land to compromise our views, to soften the hard edges of the gospel, to be selective about what parts of Scripture we hold to and teach and embrace. Lord, we pray that we would, regardless of what the immediate outcome would be, remain faithful, knowing that in the end, our our name is in the Lamb's book of life and our, our destiny as your children in your kingdom is secure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.